Hello, welcome to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Ginn. Welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Well, we've had some discussions recently about the economy, about, about the budget, about inflation. Today, we're going to dive even deeper into what's going on with the federal budget, the massive national debt that we have, a lot of the excessive spending and other sort of things that have been going on um, over the last you know several years, really decades now. <laughs> and who better to have on the program than um, Brian Riedel? He will be our guest today. Um, Brian, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Thanks, Vance. Glad to be here. Well, it's good to have you on the program. Uh, we're going to have a good discussion today about the federal budget and a lot of other issues. I'm sure they'll come up. But let me first start by giving the audience your bio. Um, so Brian Riedel is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute focusing on budget, tax, and economic policy. Previously, he worked for six years as chief economist for Senator Rob Portman out of Ohio, Republican out of Ohio, and as staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. He also served as a director of budget and spending policy for Marco Rubio's presidential campaign and was the lead architect of the 10-year deficit reduction plan for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. During 2001 to 2011, Riedel served as the Heritage Foundation's lead research fellow on federal budget and spending policy. In that position, he helped lay the groundwork for Congress to cap soaring federal spending, rein in farm subsidies, and ban pork barrel earmarks. Yes, we need more of that. <laughs> um, Riedel's writing and research have been featured in, among others, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Wa uh, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and the National Review. He's a frequent guest on NBC, CBS, PBS, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and C-SPAN all over the place. Uh, Riedel holds a bachelor's degree in economics and political science from the University of Wisconsin and a master's degree in public affairs from Princeton University. Brian, again, Welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry my bio was long. You could feel free to stop anytime and say he's he's the budget guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is true. Um, and we've got to know each other for a while now on Twitter, of all places, you know, uh, back and forth and a couple of other um, virtual seminars. We haven't, mm -hmm. I don't think yet met in person, but hopefully soon that will happen. So it's great to have you on today. First thing I like to do is to, with every guest, is to get them to talk a little bit about what motivates them. You've been working this space for a long time. What motivates you to get up every morning and say, you know what, today's gonna be a good day. I'm gonna fight for the budget. Uh, what really motivates Brian? Uh, I'm motivated because I think we're in deep trouble as a country and I'm trying to save things. Um, I uh, came to Washington in 2001 to work on federal spending uh, deficits and things have gotten a lot worse, which which means you know I'm probably not very effective at what I do. But I take a look at our fiscal situation, and it is so dire long term, and the deficits are going to get so big that if we don't do something about this, there's going to be a significant crash, and we're going to come out the other side in real economic trouble with really high taxes, drastic benefit cuts, or rampant inflation. So I wake up in the morning and stand athwart federal spenders yelling stop, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. trying to avert a crisis. Yeah. No, that, that, that's wonderful. We need more people to do that because you're right. I mean, we're running into what I think is a fiscal crisis, um, national debt over $31 trillion. Just the net interest on the debt continues to mount at a rapid rate and interest rates continue to go up. Yes. So we're going to see a lot of that. And I want to dig into more of that um, as we go through this discussion. What, is, what has been some of the key highlights of your background that you'd want the audience to know that got you to where you are today, that helped you to build your worldview of, of the way you see, where the way you see the budget and other things? My world, like in terms of, 
Um, yeah, with the with the budget and you know the fiscal worldview and and um, maybe some other issues. You know, you talked a little bit about when you were at Heritage before with the program. What are some of those things that kind of got you to where you are today? Well, I, I think I originally got interested in budget policy because I wanted to learn what government does. And the easiest way to learn about what government does is to take a look at how they spend their money. Uh, and so I got really interested because I actually kind of thought of it as a way to decide what do you think the role of government should be? If you think that if we should be doing the more defense, more education, more entitlements, higher taxes, the budget is where you play out what do you want government to be and do. It's where you play out the big picture issues. And so that's what originally got me focused on federal spending uh, and, and spent. Uh, but then again, like in the time that I, I worked on it, you work on it more and more. You dive into the numbers deeper and deeper and you go, oh, my goodness, we're in trouble. You know, over the next 30 years, the, the, the budget deficit is projected to be one hundred and fourteen trillion dollars over the next 30 years. And that's the baseline rosy scenario before we've done any more damage. That makes you motivated to work on this issue. Uh, you take a look at deficits going to two, three trillion dollars a year over the over the next decade under peace and prosperity. And then you look across the ocean to Europe and you see the huge taxes they pay in Europe. And you say, if we don't do something about this, we are going to be Europe. If we don't do something about this, your payroll taxes are going to double from 15 to 30 percent. Or we're going to be looking at a value-added tax, basically a national sales tax of 20 or 25 percent. You're going to see a lot less prosperity, not just for our kids, but even for ourselves before even we retire, because this is coming up quickly. And so that that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, well, and that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you've been doing that for so long. What, what were some of your memories from, from the Heritage Foundation? You were there for about a decade. Uh, what kind of got... Yeah. What were some exciting things you had there? I was I was at Heritage. It was, a, it was a more of a different Heritage than you see today. It was less political. Hmm. Uh, there wasn't Heritage action. There wasn't as much lobbying. There it was more of a traditional think tank back then. Great group of people. Um, the way I kind of made my market heritage was I got hired at age 26 to run federal budget uh, policy at Heritage. First job in Washington, I'm at a conservative think tank, and I start doing my research, and oh my goodness, we have a new Republican President Bush who's spending like a drunken sailor. And not just on 9-11 either, but domestically, we have a new Republican president spending like a drunken sailor. So I put out reports that say our new Republican president is spending way too much money. And that got some attention. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Heritage Foundation was not known back then for criticizing re new Republican presidents very loudly. Mm. And so I did report after report after report running the numbers and saying, we're in trouble here. Spending is rising. Deficits are rising. This is this is a problem. I ended up getting banned from the Bush White House. I was told that I was never allowed in the Bush White House ever again. I would get yeah. yelled at by the Bush White House. <laughs> and of course, liberal reporters loved me because all yeah. of a sudden... They could say, even the Heritage Foundation is criticizing President Bush. They kind of used me politically uh, in that way. But that was that was kind of what I became known for. Paul Krugman, who's my former professor, by the way, at Princeton, okay. uh, yeah. wrote an article in 2006 calling me the, the top conservative critic of Bush's spending. And of course, he said it as an insult because right. he liked the spending. But... That was kind of my, that was my fun at Heritage was yeah. I kind of came in as a 26 year old nobody and I ended up making some enemies, <laughs> but I was just, I wasn't trying to make enemies. I was trying to yeah. go where the data went. My view was 
I am going to criticize bad policy wherever it comes from, and I'm going to compliment good policy wherever it comes from, and I'm not going to bite my tongue just because it's a Republican president. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a, it was a fun ten years at Heritage, um, but boy, did I did I make some enemies? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I bet those were some interesting conversations uh, that you had with the White House and everything else that was going on. Could be a fly in the room whenever that was happening. <laughs> there was also some some interesting times that you had with Senator Portman and, and also Marco Rubio and, and Mitt Romney. What were some of those experiences like? It was good. M- Mitt Romney was really fun. Uh, the first time I met him, I walked into a room in a hotel to sit down and brief him on on budget. And he picks up his phone and he starts reading me his saved list of the funniest names he sees in newspaper articles. <laughs> he keeps a list on his phone of the funniest names he reads in newspaper articles. Huh. And I just thought, this is a different kind of politician that I'm used yes. to. There's a certain, you know, kind of silliness and almost innocence to him. There wasn't the cynicism. That uh-huh. you usually get, you know, I, I I had worked with a lot of senators and governors and congressmen. There were a lot of gruff and very serious and intimidating. And there's Mitt Romney just laughing like a child, reading reading a list of funny names to me. Um, but he, it was a, the, the 2012 campaign was great. Mitt Romney's a great guy. You can agree yeah. or disagree on his policies. You can you can have whatever opinion on his policies. But he was probably the nicest, most pure person I worked for. And the Rubio campaign in 2016 was was a positive experience, too. The good thing about Romney and Rubio both is they were very open-minded. They didn't come mm-hmm. in with talking points and say, fit policy to match my talking points. They would sit down and say, okay, what's the situation and what's the right policy? And I really mm-hmm. appreciated that. When I worked for Senator Portman, it was the same thing. Sometimes I would sit down with Senator Portman and I'd put on my political hat. And I would say, I understand politically this might be dangerous, and I understand. And he'd say, spare me the politics. I don't care. You're the economist. Just tell me what the right policy is. I'll worry about the politics. And those are the politicians you like to work for, the ones where you actually can dive into the issues, and they're not saying – they're not just looking at poll data. They're going – Leave the politics to the political advisors. Tell me what the right policy is. Those are the good guys. Yeah, well, that, that's right. I'm, again, I'm sure those were wonderful conversations and trying to see what all the different things. And um, you brought up some good ideas along the way. Uh, I'm glad that you were there doing that at the time. And, you know, whenever you're thinking about it from an economic perspective, who who are some of your your favorite economists? Milton Friedman. I have to always start with St. Milton of Chicago, like every yep. conservative economist. Uh, I was heavily influenced by Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek. Um, Henry, I read Henry Hazlitt Economics in One Lesson when I was in college, and I still reached that book today, and I'm surprised at how many economists with really impressive credentials still miss the basic lessons in economics in one lesson. Uh, Thomas Sowell is a terrific economist. I'm trying to look back at uh, my bookshelf. Right. Yeah. No, um, I mean, that's already a great group right there. <laughs> yeah. Their, their, their books are right there. Uh, you know, yeah. even today, Greg Mank, I work, I work with Glenn Hubbard yeah. a lot, Cass okay. a lot. Great group. What about yeah. you? Who are your, who are your favorites? Well, I think number one would be Milton Friedman. I don't. I, I can't tell. I probably read Capitalism and Freedom at least four times, and, <laughs> and Free to Choose a number of times. Um, I still watch his YouTube 
um, presentations, his speeches, because you learn something new each time. Um, Frederick Hayek is another one, Road to Serfdom. Um, the Fatal Conceit is probably my favorite book, though, right? Um, Knowledge and Decisions by Thomas Sowell is, a, is one of my my favorites as well. Um, so no, I'm, I'm right there with you on, on a lot of those. Those are those are great ones. Um, you know, Henry Hazlitt, the Economics of One Lesson. If if someone asked me, family member or friend asked me, what's the one economics book I, I should read? That's usually the one I tell them because <laughs> He was an economist, right? He was a journalist that was writing and and was able to explain things in a way that not the non-economist could understand and and put it into practical terms. I think that was uh, one of the great things about Henry Hazlitt. He yeah, he was great. He could actually he was right, which is great for a journalist. And yeah. he could, as you say, he could explain it in ways regular people could understand without the jargon, without without having to do six graphs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and it was I found him so intuitive. And like I said, there's brilliant economists with really impressive credentials who still get basic economics wrong because they forget some of the basic lessons from economics in one lesson. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I think that's right. And I think we've seen that a lot in this most recent period, you know, with the inflationary story. There, there was a lot of talk early on how it was going to be transitory inflation, uh, that this was all going to go away quickly. It was going to go up and then go away. And even some of my good friends that that are, you know, good conservative, um, libertarian types of economists, classical liberal is what I consider myself. Um, you know, they were like, look, it's, it's going to go away. I think they were looking so much at the supply side effects. And the effects of the pandemic that that was creating a situation that once those supply chains weren't disrupted anymore and were free flowing, that those prices would come back down. Um, but they overlooked kind of what Milton Friedman said, uh, where inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Now, you got to look at the supply side as well. But there was so much money that was put into the economy in a short period of time at the same time that the supply side was being choked by um, so much regulation and everything else that it was, in my view, is always going to be longer term. Um, how did you kind of see some of that situation? I saw the same thing. I mean, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. The Federal Reserve pumped in about four to five trillion dollars of new dollars into the economy. At the same time, that supply constraints meant that you had more money chasing fewer goods. Um, people were, were slow coming back to work. They weren't allowed to come back to work for, uh, for a long time. You had uh, trade blockages, the ports. You had productivity slowly coming back. Um, uh, capital investment slow to come back. So you literally had, you injected all this money at the same time that the number of goods started and, and services, to be honest, both started drying up. So of course you're going to get inflation. And I was amazed at how tone deaf the policies have been. A $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, major new tariffs from China, buy America rules, raising construction, uh, raising procurement costs, uh, all sorts of uh, tightening of Davis-Bacon, raising government construction costs, new ethanol mandates, raising raising costs for food. Uh, you had all of these policies at the same time that you already were going to get some inflation coming out of the recession. And so I, I think, you know, some, some inflation was inevitable. And that's what we've seen globally. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, the, the things we had to do during the pandemic meant that some degree of inflation was inevitable. But it was economic malpractice for Washington to then pour gasoline on the fire by going on a major spending spree, tariffs, business regulations, building limitations, construction limitations, procurement regulations, oil and gas limitations, all raising costs at the exact same time. Um, It's really amazing how much worse they made it. 
Yeah, they, it really is. And, and a lot of it can be explained by just basic economics. Getting to your point earlier, we need to just learn basic economics again. Because <laughs> uh, you're exactly right. Chasing too much money, money chasing too few goods, you're going to get higher inflation. And so, you know, um, and I want to get back to that here in, here in a minute. I want to kind of get into some of your thoughts about what was going on during the Trump administration. Um, you know, I was there for a little while, for about a year, from June 2019 to May of 2020 as Chief Economist of the Office of Management and Budget, which is kind of interesting because, you know, the first person who had that position was uh, Art Laffer in 1971 when they changed oh, wow. it from the budget of the Bureau that. to OMB. Um, and then in 1981 was Larry Kudlow. Yeah. Uh, and so I happened to be there in, in 2020. And so we had some good discussions about that with Larry Kudlow. Um, but I know that, you know, look, there were some good pro-growth things that I think the administration did with deregulation, a lot of things with the tax cuts. Um, part of that was before I was there. And I know within the last budget that 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 we wrote and I was there during that time, uh, we found $4.6 trillion in savings, tried to find a way out of this fiscal crisis. And of course, that was before the pandemic and everything else started. Um, but but I know that um, you had also been kind of critical of some of the, some of the spending and everything else that had been going on. What were some of your concerns about what was going on during that period? Yeah, my concern is I think it was a missed opportunity on spending and deficits. I, I like the tax cuts. I think the tax cuts were a good policy, particularly on the corporate side. We had a completely unsustainable, archaic, global outlier corporate policy, and we were bleeding jobs and, and investment. But I do wish some of the I would do wish the tax cuts had been paid for more. I, I think that we could have done more to broaden the tax base to pay for a lot of what we did on taxes. On the spending side, you know, not only did we really not get much done on Social Security and Medicare and the big entitlements, even when Republicans had a trifecta, uh, you mm -hmm. know, that was I think that was the time where I Republicans needed to be more aggressive on spending and we weren't. But then we had the big budget deals on discretionary spending where we, we basically repealed the, the BCA caps and 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 allowed discretionary spending to grow really rapidly. So, you know, even even if you like some of the policies, you know, the tax cuts had a lot of great policies. You know, some of you can you can point to some of the discretionary hikes that were positive in certain areas. Boy, we just you know, during peace and prosperity through 2019, we were still pushing up deficits when we needed to be reforming entitlements. I don't really begrudge the administration with the pandemic costs. And I yeah. think one of the problems I have with democratic critiques um, is they say, oh, you know, Trump added X trillion to deficits. That's true. But some of that was about half of his deficits were the pandemic that the Democrats, the Democrats wrote those bills, passed those bills out of Congress and championed the benefits such as the child credit, PPP, right. PPP loan. So I think it's really disingenuous for Democrats to push through a lot of the spending and then complain about it. As a matter of fact, I'll add, just I'll plug, sure. I wrote earlier last year, the definitive report on the Trump budget record. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I wrote the definitive report on the Obama budget record, the definitive report on the Bush budget record, where I literally went through every line item of every bill and every movement to the deficit. And President Trump's legislation did add $7.8 trillion to 10-year deficits. But when Democrats complain about that, Democrats voted for $6.5 of trillion of the 7.8. Mm. 80% of it was bipartisan. So I'm critical. And half of the half of the $7.8 trillion was the pandemic that yeah. I don't think you can really blame anyone on. 
uh, uh, for that spending. But I am more critical of the other half of the spending and the other half of the deficits. But I'm also a little annoyed when Democrats take credit for all these policies and then and then yeah. say, oh, but those are Trump's deficits. You can't have it both ways. Right, right. Yeah. And that's a great point, Brian. It's one of the things whenever I see some of these charts, that you'll break it down. Like, Here's the national debt, how much it increased by over time. And it's broken down by president. It's like, okay, but who is in Congress? Congress ultimately has the the power of the purse, right? And and so the Congress is also the one that's passing all these bills. I mean, the president does write a budget, which I'm not so sure has much influence other than saying these are the priorities of the president. but it was it was it was good to write it and and see what's in it, you know, and everything like that. Um, but at the end of the day, the the Congress votes and they pass out the budget. Then it's a question of whether or not the president is going to veto a budget. And there's not line item authority like there is like in Texas where I live. Greg Abbott has line item authority, and so it's either do you pass a budget and try to get some things that you like, or do you veto it and say you know what, go back to the drawing board. It's a big decision to make. Yeah, it's, it's even it's even worse than that because uh, I, I first off. When, when you become president, you inherit a baseline. And the baseline is the government's on autopilot. What's it going to look like over the next 10 years? When Trump got elected, he inherited a baseline of $10 trillion in deficits over the next decade. That was the, the, that was the default that he inherited before he even started. Beyond that, 70% of all spending is on autopilot. The yeah. entitlement programs, the president does not have the unilateral authority to change. Congress has to pass a bill. It's on autopilot. And about 95% of revenues are on autopilot. For the remaining portion that's not on autopilot, as you mentioned, Congress has to pass the bill first, and then you have to take or leave the whole thing. Right. So the president has damn near no power over the federal budget, except in the rare instance when the president can persuade Congress to pass a bill that he really wants and then signs it. That is essentially the only thing the president really has power over. The yes. rest of the budget is either on autopilot um, or or it's basically passed by Congress and the president has to take it or leave it. So, yep. you know, I think, and I, I've written reports on this, the worst way to judge a president's deficit record is by looking at the deficit during his presidency. Yeah. I know that sounds uh, uh, ironic. And that's why, like, when I wrote the report on the Trump budget record, I split up. What's the baseline? What was on autopilot? What was legislation? You have to break up what the president can control. Mm. And even then, I also did sections on what was the president's budget proposal? What was the president's vision? Because yeah. again, the president has to take what Congress gives him. And if you don't break that out, you're doing lazy and misleading analysis. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating, Brian. I didn't know about this. And is that all available online? Yes. If you just Google um, yeah. Manhattan Institute Trump budget record. Okay. Trump fiscal record. For the audience, I'll add it to the show notes page, advancedagain.substack.com. I'll put that all on the website. So that'll be good. I, I can't wait to look at Obama. that. You can Google Obama fiscal record too. And actually, yeah. one of the neat things about this report and also my chart book that came out is there's actually a section then that compares Bush, Obama, and Trump using huh. the same statistical methodology, you can do full comparisons across presidents and huh. see how, how they did compared to each other. It's it's it, it's and it's it's all methodologically consistent. There's no bias, there's no games, it's all the same methodology to compare presidents. And so what were the results? What did you, what did you find when you did that? Uh I found um Trump, Trump 
scored the highest on legislation, seven point eight trillion over ten years. Obama was um, it's, so scoring highest in the sense that there was the most debt added. added yeah, yeah, Trump added seven point eight trillion. Okay, uh, over over ten years. Uh, looking at my numbers right now, Obama added uh, five trillion over over ten years over a ten year period, and Bush added seven trillion over a ten wow. year period. And if you just measure measure by legislation, now. From the numbers, you have to go into what's driving it. And again, that's the factors that are up to the viewer or up to the reader. Like Trump had 7.8 trillion, but half of that was the pandemic. Yeah. Bush had 6.9 trillion, but two and a half trillion of that was 9-11 costs. And so Mm. that's where I I still gave the numbers and I gave the breakdown, and the reader gets to decide. Okay, yeah. this was justified. This was not justified. I what I just do is I provide the breakdown, and then people can say, okay, this president should have done better. This president did the best he could under the economic conditions. But those are the numbers. Yeah, no, that that really is fascinating. I guess for Obama, one could argue that it was par- partially from the Great Recession, right? Correct. The president, President Obama, had. There was a one trillion dollars in legislation directly from the like, like basically the, the big two thousand and nine stimulus was one the trillion. American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the ARA. But then there was another trillion. People forget about this. There was another trillion in stimulus bills gradually over the next three years that was actually mostly passed by a Republican Congress. And this is when you had the payroll tax holiday, the make work pay credit, unemployment benefit extensions, and all the way went through twenty thirteen. There's kind yeah. of this view of Oh, we we understood under stimulus during the recession because we just did one bill. There was actually another trillion in wow. additional stimulus that was signed by President Obama all the way through early 2013 that Republicans passed um, together. That was bipartisan. So when you're looking at the Obama numbers, yeah, there's about two trillion of it was stimulus policies recovering from the recession. And my reports break down every category. It breaks down every movement in the deficit by every category, including the parts we discussed earlier, that's the economy and technical re-estimates that are not related to legislation. You break out those two and... If you're a geek like me, it's really fun. Yeah, no, I, I like it. I'm fascinated. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> um, and, and Brian, one of the things, I guess, going on those lines for corrections and um, um, looking at CBO reports and everything, one of the things that I remember doing while I was at OMB was looking at the Trump tax cuts. And there was this discussion about the Trump tax cuts are going to pay for themselves and that sort of thing. And 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 just to be upfront about it, I'm, I'm not a supply side economist that just says that tax cuts pay for themselves. I think you should also be reining in spending. If we're cutting taxes and the economy is growing faster, which I believe in incentive effects, right? Like there will be more revenue that's going to come in. Right. Then you don't need as much spending. You, you, you should be controlling the, the, the other side of the equation as well. And too often we don't do that. I mean, the last president that really did that was Calvin Coolidge uh, hundred years ago. You know, and when I, when I go down that, that path, I saw from the Trump tax cuts, the situation was, is like, look, if we consider the economic effects and the statistical corrections that CBO did over time from the deregulation and the tax cuts themselves and the new economic growth, there, there was an increase in revenue that the CBO announced over time that would have paid for the amounts of the static estimates from the tax cuts. I, I wonder if you had looked at, looked at anything like that or had any comments. I, I, I mean, I, I haven't looked at the 
the numbers recently. Uh, I yeah. did about a year ago. I mean, my, my reading is that they have not paid for themselves. Um, okay. My reading is that it, the, the problem is you have to, how do you, the, the challenge is disentangling everything else that's happened in the economy, especially yeah. when you have things like, a, like the pandemic in 2020. That wreaked havoc on tax revenue so much that it almost makes it impossible to measure the effect of the tax cuts at that point because you're you're, you're just analyzing a different economy and measuring you know we even like right now we've had a huge tax revenue increase in the past couple of years and, and in fact some of it's inflation but some of it is also just the, you know coming out of the coming out of the pandemic uh revenues yeah. this past year just hit uh, 19.8% of gdp which is only the second highest level since world war 2 individual income tax revenues hit 10.6% of gdp for the first time ever in the past mm. year now the question is how much of that is economic growth. How much of that is parts of the tax code that don't adjust for inflation fast enough? And so you get a short-term spike because part of the tax code is not adjusting for inflation mm. yet. And so I think it's hard to disentangle all those effects from what were, what was caused by the 2017 tax cuts. You have so many variables to control for. Yeah. I do remember that the Joint Tax Committee came out when the when the tax cuts were enacted. They said the tax, the static cost was about 1.4, 1.5 trillion over 10 years. And they ballparked growth revenues are going to take care of about 300, 350 billion of it. It did look like in the first couple of years, the economy did very well. You know, we, you, you were there 2019. Yeah. The economy was roaring. It was on fire. It was far overperforming anything that had been projected. We created twice as many jobs between 2017 and 2019 as CBO projected when Trump took office. Yeah. So there was a higher feedback revenue effect from 20, I think, than the 350 or $300 billion that were assumed by JCT. The challenge is what do you do starting in 2020 when everything blew up in the economy? And at that point, I just don't know how to measure the Trump tax cuts anymore. I yeah. will say we would have had better economic effects if not for some of the other policies like the tariffs that kind of pulled back, I think, some of our gains. Yeah, and I would I would agree. I think even in some of our estimations when we were doing the economic assumptions for the budget and everything, that we we would show that there was some lag, there was some there was some negative economic effects, some negative shocks from those those taxes. I think there was other arguments that it was still worth it to go after China uh, in, internal within the Trump White House. I, I was pretty av advocate of, of not doing that. I think that yeah. there should have been more pressure for free trade uh, and trade agreements with friendly countries that I think would have put more pressure on China at the end of the day to liberalize. But my argument didn't win <laughs> within those discussions. Yeah, I mean, I I I get the national security arguments. I'm I'm aware of of yeah, you know, hating China and cracking down on China is is really good politics. And frankly, it's not without merit. I mean, China, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not a defender of China either. Sure. But I do come from this the economic policy view that some of the policies like tariffs actually create more problems than they solve. You know, yeah. I don't think it's a matter of being weak on China. I think you could say in a lot of places, tariffs do more damage to the United States than to the country we're trying to punish. And so I'm all for, you know, I, I hold China in no regard. I'm not in favor of doing any favors for China. Right. But it's more, some of these policies just raise costs for American consumers. Yeah. They don't really change China's behavior as much as we would like. So 
I just don't know if they're effective. No, that's a good point. Um, I agree with you. And it's one of the the things that I'm kind of concerned about is the direction of the future of where we're going, kind of wrapping things up here. There, There's kind of this conservative nationalism sort of movement, right? Where from those of us on the, on the right is, is saying, yeah. look, we find that there are these problems that are out there. Government could be the solution if we just have the right people in power to, to make those corrections. Um, unfortunately, or at least in my default, Brian, is that um, government's usually the problem. <laughs> uh, and so if government's the problem, how can it be the solution? Because usually the government's just going to exacerbate the problem in the process, kind of to your point about the tariffs. I wonder if, do you have any concerns about some of that or what, what have been your thoughts? Ab- absolutely. I think the, the economic nationalism comes from a good place in people's heart. You know, when people say America's, America's policy should put America first, I agree with that absolutely um i i think the policies they promote though are are really old democratic statist policies mm. they're big government it's we're going to trust politicians to manage the economy better than we can manage we're going to trust them to tax and spend and regulate in a way that will create better outcomes than if we trust ourselves and we trust free markets and i just don't buy that I think free markets have produced amazing prosperity in the United States. I think what some of the inequality data that gets thrown around is is overblown because it's poor it's poor or misstated economic inequality data. It's a lot of it is misinterpreted. I think we have seen amazing prosperity. I think free trade has brought significant prosperity and I I I think there is a role for government at the margins, of course, but the idea that if we go back to the old populist, big government tax spending and regulating, but we just have it run by people we like, that we can trust them to, to do it better than the other people did. I've been in Washington 20 years. I don't trust any of these lawmakers. I know politicians. I've worked for politicians. I've advised politicians. I talk to members of Congress almost every day. They're wonderful people. I don't trust them to run the economy. Yes. Well, and and um, the market works best, right? Government is just other people and their incentives are such that, you know, they're in some sense, they have to be rent seekers because they have to be reelected in the process. So their exactly. marginal cost and marginal benefits are going to be much different than those of us that are in the private sector. Yeah. I mean, remember, a government big enough to give you everything is a government big enough to take away. Yeah. And that's why I get really nervous when conservatives say if you know let's give government all these new tools over the economy and uh but don't worry because our guys are in charge and they'll use it for 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 what we want well our guys aren't going to be in charge forever and yeah. if you're going to create all these new tools for regulators and politicians what is going to happen with the first day the other guys are in charge? They are going to turn those weapons against you, and they're going to use them for economic destructive uh, policies. And I, I, I think that it, it's just dangerous for us to go down that road. Yeah. And again, I, I do not agree with the critique that capitalism has failed. I think right. America, you know, we can talk all we want about how, you know, um, we, we wish the economy was growing faster and we wish that we had more benefits. The poorest states in America are richer than, than many of the richest countries in Europe and elsewhere. So even, even the people who aren't doing well in America are doing a lot better than places that do not practice free market economics to the degree we do. And we can always do better, but so much of what we, so much of our problems are caused by government screw ups. 
don't give them more power fix get rid of the get rid of the the entities making the screw ups you know i think of things like the housing crash in 2008 that wasn't a failure of of, of capitalism no <laughs> that was a fail that was a, the federal reserve kept interest rates too low yep. the federal reserve pumped up I'm sorry, the federal government pumped up a, a housing boom. We, we, we did too much mortgage-backed securities. We, we had a lot of uh, really poor regulations of the housing market. That drove it more than just capitalism failed. I, I agree. Um, amen. <laughs> a, lot of good, <laughs> a lot of good points there. I, and in the last couple of minutes that we have here, if, if Brian, if you had a magic wand and we know that it looks like this is November 16th, 2022. We just had an election. Um, looks like the Republicans will have the House, uh, control of the House. Senate still up for grabs. We don't know yet after after Georgia. Um, but if but if if Brian was given the, the wand and said, hey, look, this is the policies that we need to have for a pro-growth, more prosperous America, what would you put in place? Oh, boy. The first thing I, I would do is address the spending. Because if we don't fix spending, we are going to have to raise taxes. And people need to understand this. If we don't address the spending trends, we are going to have to nearly double your income taxes at a certain point just to pay for the current policies we have. Once you surrender that, once you start putting in a doubling of tax rates, huge value-added tax, payroll tax. You can't do much of anything else to help the economy. You're going to have stagnation. And so I, I think one of the first things I would do is I would address Social Security and Medicare. And I would do it sooner rather than later, because the sooner you do it, the more gradual it's going to be. You don't have to pummel current seniors as you know nearly to a destructive degree if you do it soon. I would also, I think, I'd do a lot more to address government red tape and regulation. Mm, yeah. um, even, even under good presidents, the amount of red tape and regulation just gets worse and worse and worse. And we need to have some sort of rule. The Trump administration was good on this, that you know, what, if you're going to add a regulation, you got to get rid of a regulation. Those kinds of rules, I think we have to, we have to fix that. And then things like unleash American energy, uh, bring more of a free market to the healthcare system, bring more consumer choice to the healthcare system. I think bring more free trade. Those things can help us prosper more. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, one of the big things that I'm in favor of, Brian, is like a, a spending limit. I love for us to have a spending limit at the federal yeah. level. I mean, you look at all the states, and I've done a lot of work with different states um, mm -hmm. of them trying to improve their spending limits, but we call it the conservative Texas budget or responsible budgets that are out there um, based on population growth and inflation, but just something that helps to rein in all the discretion that's going on um, because it's, it makes it very difficult otherwise. I mean, in, at the federal level, you don't have a balanced budget amendment like you have in a right. 49 of the 50 states. Um, and in Europe, and, Europe has yep. fiscal limits right. more, more, more than the United States does. Exactly right. And I think that would also help rein in our deficits, which would also help rein in the Federal Reserve. If the Federal Reserve didn't have so much debt that they could buy from the Treasury, then that would limit their ability to manipulate the economy like they do. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think fiscal limits are important. I mean, last year, the federal government spent $47,000 per household. Ooh. You know, I tell audiences, raise your hand if you're getting your money's worth. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the idea that we can spend our way out of our problems, we're already spending $47,000 per household. If you just let people keep more of that of that money for themselves, think the pro think of the problems you could solve. Yeah. And so spending limits I think are a key component. 
But once my, my only concern with spending limits is some conservatives talk about spending limits as if, as if it's the end of the story rather than mm. the beginning. It's OK. Right. But once you get the spending limits, what are you going to cut to get there? What are you yeah. going to reform to get there? And we have to have that discussion that we have promised so much more spending than we've actually can afford and that we think we're going to pay in taxes. We got to get under, under control. Well, I totally agree. Um, any last words for you? Part you're in Texas. Uh, tech, yeah. uh, congrats to Texas on having a, a good election night, a very good election night. Uh, looks like uh, Texas, Florida, other states are kind of showing the way for the future. And so uh, just want yeah. to co- compliment your people. Well, I hope so. I hope that's the case. We need more of that. And we need more people like you, Brian, uh, working <laughs> on the budget and finding ways that will um, help roll back the oversized government, the the national debt and everything else that's that's really taken away from us being able to flourish because otherwise we need to prosper, you know? And so um, again, thank you, Brian, for being on the Let People Prosper show. Thank you, the audience, for listening today um, and watching. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find the show notes page at vanceskin.substack.com. Thank you again. Let people prosper. <laughs>